On today's podcast, I'm joined by Alan Gingrich and Steve Fielder, and we're going to honor the 70th anniversary of UKC Licensed Night Hunts. You'll want to stay tuned for this one. You're listening to the UKC Hunting Ops Podcast, celebrating hunting dog heritage, competition, and community. United Kennel Club has been the hunting dog sports home for coonhounds, beagles, retrievers, pointers, cur feist, and more for over 125 years. This podcast is fueled by Yukonuba, the official performance dog nutrition partner of UKC. Alrighty, everyone. Welcome back to the UKC Hunting Ops Podcast. This is Trevor Wade. I'm the Coonhound Program Manager at UKC, and I'm joined today, as always, by the Director of Hunting Ops, Alan Gingrich. What's going on, Alan? Well, it's a good day. I've been looking forward to this one for a while. We've put some notes together, and, and I'm live, loving the, the topic today, so I've been looking forward to it for a good while. we got a, a good guest that I'm glad we got the chance to connect here, and and yeah, it's been a good day so far, and I'm I'm ready to dive into it. Yeah, absolutely, Will. Uh, this is kind of the first time that me and you have done kind of a long-form podcast on the road, so it's a little bit different. we got our notes laid out here, but we're on Friday afternoon at Autumn Oaks. Just got the cast called out, and we kind of did this uh, for a reason because we were able to to bring on another member that we wanted to to have on for this historical podcast where we kind of celebrate the history of United Kennel Club, and you can't do that uh, without our guest today, and that's Mr. Steve Fielder. What's going on, Steve? Hey, Trevor, I'm doing great, man. Another autumn oaks. What could be bad about it, right? Yeah. Yes. What about how how many times have you been here? You reckon over the years? <laughs> I don't know, Trev. I <laughs> I I think Alan and I talked about that maybe earlier at some point. I came to autumn oaks a few times and hunted in it myself when I was probably living and working in West Virginia or Ohio in a career. I had like a ten year career in sales before I went to work at UKC. Yeah. So it was probably during that time period, uh, mostly at Greencastle, yeah. and uh, remember those experiences very well. Absolutely. And, and, of course, the years I was at UKC, which I think were about 16. Um, maybe that counts my field rep days. I'm not sure. But I did all, you know, all, every year then, of course. That was, yeah. that was a paycheck. So he probably knows how I felt last night whenever you said, uh, instead of doing the podcast with Steve tonight, let's think about tomorrow night. I was thinking, man, after Castrol, I'm usually drained. That's a <laughs> Friday here at Autumn Oaks is, is when you're sitting on that side of the table can be a little tedious, a long day. It can be, but you know, as it turned out today, it was everything turned out great, really. Very smooth. It really did. So, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of an adrenaline rush, mm -hmm. I think, you know, and I've heard people say that after they were in an event that, you know, the adrenaline was really pumping and all. And then when it was over, you know, they're like exhausted. Yeah. You know? yeah. And, you know, I can remember that feeling. Yeah. You know, you're, you're pumped because you, you know, well, you get caught up in all the crowd yeah. and the excitement of what's going down and all. But in the back of your mind, being in your, your position, you want it to all come down right. Mm -hmm. I mean, you want this to be all it can be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and every guy out there, I loved it today when you asked who, who's uh, at the first, first timers. Time, yeah, first timers. Yeah, quite and a few a, hands actually yeah, came up. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I I remember feeling that that rush. Yeah, you absolutely. know, and that's why I kind of said yesterday we talked about maybe doing that, or yeah. maybe earlier yeah. today. I yeah. said 
you've just got through calling all the casts and getting all that. You know, I if I were you, I'd take a little break. You know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, man, Steve, yeah. I'm, I'm so happy to have you on. You're you're uh, set up right beside us here with yeah. the Going to the Dogs podcast, and yeah. I guess real quick we can talk about that a little bit. Uh, I know when I first took the job at UKC, I was heading uh, back and forth, Michigan to Tennessee. Mm. Every other week I was doing that. And uh, and uh, Houndsman XP podcast back in the right. day with you mm-hmm. and Chris Powell. Yeah, sure. And then you shifted over to the Nightlife Nation or, mm-hmm. uh, stuff. And then uh, and now we're going to the Dog Podcast, 100 episodes you just dropped. We so. just did the 100th last The one that's playing this week as we're talking. You're an expert in this game now. Oh, brother. It's hard for me to believe. I think there's been like 211 or something like that podcast wow. that I've done now yeah. that blows my mind because mm-hmm. yeah. I remember when Chris Powell and I first got together started talking about it I'll be honest with you I had heard about podcasts uh Ron Beam I think Bain Pat, Ron Bain, Bain yeah Bain. he From called Michigan. me one time and mm-hmm. asked me if I'd like to be on a podcast and I said yeah I don't know what that is but you know <laughs> yeah so I was really pretty dumb and then, you know, Chris was a podcast listener, so he'd been listening to Joe Rogan and Media and some of these things. And so, you know, he kind of led me into that a little bit, but we were both green as grass. We knew nothing about equipment or, you know, how to, what's an RSS feed? How do we get this thing on the internet and all? So I was a, a real rookie in those days. Yeah. And I remember sitting on a sofa at the house with the TV tray sitting in front of me with a mic on it, doing, you know, doing my thing, man. I'm, yeah. <laughs> but don't want to overpower the, these answers, but I always thought having a radio show would be the coolest thing. I was going to mention that because I've heard you say that a lot throughout the years, you know, mentioned that, that Ben, this is kind of better than that. It, it is better. It really <laughs> is. And you don't have all the hassle. Because, you know, it's one thing to say, oh, man, I'm going to have a radio show and it's going to be every Sunday night and I'm going to have all the results of all the events. For the yeah. weekend. And I'm thinking, you dummy, you don't, you're a party of one. Yeah. Who's going to feed you all this information? Yeah. How are you going to get stations to carry your show? Yeah. You're going to get it syndicated? Well, anyway. Well, it's kind of cool we're talking about this, really, because we're going to dive way back in to where they would have never even dreamed of anything like this, you know, and, uh-huh. and to the simple beginnings of night hunts. And yeah. and it's it's I think it's going to be hopefully we can kind of paint that picture of what it looked like, you know, yeah. back in the day and kind of how things have evolved. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, we're yeah. talking about today's, you know, what the technology and everything we have available today, but. Things looked a whole lot different going back to some of the first night hunts, for sure. Oh, I guess. And, you know, this media thing, I'm thinking, as you're talking, that we, you know, there, there was nothing. Back in the very earliest days, you had somehow somebody calling in from a cast. And I don't even think cell phones were available. I think it was a walkie-talkie or something. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody relayed it or yeah. what in, into the headquarters that yeah. so-and-so was leading the cast, yeah. you know. Yeah. And then, you know, from that it progressed. Along came the Internet, and we started doing play-by-plays, mm-hmm. you know. And, uh, man, I have so mem- many memories of all of that. And just so thankful to have been a a part of seeing some of that develop, you know, because back in the days of UKC, when we started having a 
wanted a message for them and all those things, you know, how do you do that? You know, the internet was so new Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and all. And so it, we've come a ways. Yeah. Well, you, you kind of alluded to it there, Alan, and, and in the introduction there, we did uh, this just coming here real quick. When By the time you listen to this, it'll be in the next couple of days, the 70th year anniversary of UKC Licensed Night Hunt events. Sept- 70 years. September 18th, 1953. And uh, we're going to talk about that day. We're going to look back at uh, the scorecard they had at that first event. We're going to look at some of the results from that event. We're going to talk about a lot of people, a lot of names and dogs that people are probably familiar with. Uh, but let's talk a little bit first about how, how we got to that point and, uh, and working at UKC. And I know both of you guys know this. There's a wealth of resources at, at our fingertips always with our old uh, publications and uh, see the 100 Year Centennial books in front of Allen where we've pulled some really good articles from the past uh, that you can reference. And I used all those things when kind of digging up small things. And, Steve, I'm glad you're on here. One of the, th- the first things that I saw was the September 1983 issue of Coonhound Bloodlines. Uh, and that was the 30th year anniversary of uh, Night Hunts, and that was that uh, that that issue. And you were a big time com- contributor to that issue, and I got a lot of information from that <laughs> issue. 1983. That was probably pretty early in your tenure. It right? was really. I came to work there uh, in uh, Jan- on January 3rd, 83. Yeah. So, yeah, and I think that was you know we there were so many things happening at that time starting to build Coonhound Bloodlines magazine and starting the breed issues and things like that. So I did a lot of writing back in those days. And really, I had done no writing. I'd submitted a, an article or two to Full Crime magazine when, back in 71. Yeah. I think the first published article I had was 1971. And I was in Japan in the Air Force. And, yeah. you know, and I, but when I got to UKC, uh, then President Fred Miller told me, well, we have this column or article called Coon Talk. And it was been written by uh, Andy Johnson, who was there, was kind of my predecessor. And so now this is your baby. So mm-hmm. you, you need to write this every month, you know. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, okay. Well, here we go. You know, but as <laughs> So that got, was kind of your first writing? That was really on a regular basis, oh. yes. Oh. That was uh, the thing. I— I always read everything I could get my hands mm-hmm. on. And and so a lot of that history I had already digested through my dad's magazines yeah. and stuff yeah. when I was home. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think uh, for us to get to that point in uh, in 1953 with that first license night home, we kind of have to start out with the field trials. That's kind of right. the basis of, of people wanting to compete with, with coon hounds um, in a way. And, uh, and in those articles, it tells you that uh, the first publicized field trial was back in Marion, Ohio, back in 1924. Mm. And uh, mm-hmm. there was a picture in the magazine of a blue tint colored <laughs> hound by the name of Bones. Bones. Owned by right. Lester and Harry Hartman, right? Oh, Hartman? Was yeah, Hartman, Hartman on, one? on there. Yeah. There was one named, a fellow named Robinson also that owned. I got you. He, uh, yeah, that one of those big uh, field trial dogs. Yeah, yeah. You you alluded to a few different ones in that in that article, but that picture there of bones and he was, he was looked like a hound that you would see in the hunts today. Honestly, oh, I mean, yeah. his, mm-hmm. his, uh, confirmation and, and the way he was built, he wasn't one of the long ears, slower type. He looked like a fit coon hound that you'd see competing at an event like this. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. 1924. That's, you know, my grandfather yeah. was my hero when it came to coon hounds and beagles and stuff. And this is even before his time. That's just hard for me to fathom. 
my dad was born in 1920. And, uh, you know, as you go back into those old magazines and when I started doing research for like that 30 years of hunting and doing these breed issues, went back there. Those were the days when guys wore their straw hats, straw bowler hats and their suits and our coats yeah. and ties yeah and they got all the dogs together that were in the field trial mm -hmm. out there and they had a big photo and and they painted the numbers on the dog's side and those guys that was pre-registration you know for a lot of those dogs yeah. uh ukc i think 1898 yeah. was the first year it was but they still you know there was uh, some swagger there they had had yeah. some events you know but I think those guys soon started thinking, you know, this is fun. We love it, but it's really not like the hunt. I, I want to go out and beat you with my dog in the woods. Right. You yeah. know, but they had some great names for their dogs, like Bones, Midnight Flyer. Yeah. Well, I remember that was, seeing that, that was name. a red dog, man. Yeah. You know, and they, they there was a Colonel Robinson. That name keeps coming back to my yeah. mind. He was one of those early field trialers, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, uh, but yeah. And those dogs, those field trial dogs, when the, uh, the night hunt started the first license and stuff, they figured pretty strongly, mm -hmm. you know, they did. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, you mentioned that field trial was in Marion, Ohio. Ironically, that is, uh, right next town over from Mount Gilead, Ohio, where our world championship right. is this year. So we kind of know where that is. Yeah. yeah. You know, when yeah. we go over there to the world hunt, you know, we'll, we'll go but right through there. We, right might stay, we might stay yeah, We might stay here. Right well, Marion, yeah. well yeah. I, I guess we have to, we have to mention the, the leafy oak. We can't be at autumn oaks and not mention the leafy See, oak, I which started I three years later. Yeah. Three years, 1927, I think they're the Kenton National or right. leafy oak. And yeah. I remember my grandfather talking about the leafy oak. And honestly, at the time when he was talking about, I already heard a little bit about the autumn oaks. Yeah. Or yeah. as old Charlie Cundiff calls it, the autumn oak. Yeah, you know, well, but I friend, thought he was talking about the same thing, but it really wasn't. Well, Lee, was Lee Kearns, my good friend from South Carolina, Lee just had his 84th birthday. Wow. Lee's quite a great guy to talk to because he hunted with some of the real famous dogs that we talk about yeah. in the Walker breed, especially mm -hmm. Banjo 2, House's Lipper, yeah. um, Gold, uh, Gold Creek Mundo, yeah. all these dogs. He actually hunted with those dogs and bred to them. But Lee calls it Autumn's Oak. Oh, Autumn's Oak. Autumn's Oak. Yeah. Put the little long <laughs> spin on it, don't they? You know, I mentioned Charlie Cundiff always called it the Autumn Oak. And, and his, Autumn. his son Doug is a field rep for us. And he right. that's what, how he still calls it, too, the oh. Autumn Oak. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, you, you kind of talked about this a little bit, Steve, but already by the, uh, probably in the 20s already, but definitely in the 30s, the, the field trial stuff was kind of, uh, <laughs> was kind of already uh, not being well received by the coon, by the, the true coon hunters at that time. Uh, just a lot of issues. And uh, there was one excerpt in the, in the magazine that I saw come from a, an ad Hans Wagner. That's probably a name that's familiar oh, yeah. to a lot of uh, black and tan fanciers for sure. And his midnight melody coonhound kennels. And there's an ad back in the 1930s. And I'm just going to read a, a quote on, on his ad uh, of him and what he, and, and you can kind of uh, see how, I would say this opinion was shared by a lot of the true coon hunters at the time. It says, we have always bred the best of the best, and by this we mean genuine old coon hounds that have won their spurs out in the big woods and water country tree and wild coons in all kinds of rough weather. 
not mongrels that have won their championships over a Tom Thumb golf course on a warm <laughs> Sunday afternoon running a 20-minute-old coon drag, which any parlor poodle can do, as is evident by many of the great field trial champions. <laughs> Steve, you you uh you quoted it, and then afterwards you said the battle on the battle lines were drawn, <laughs> <laughs> the gloves were off, <laughs> yeah. for sure. Hans Wagner was a really colorful guy. He was an uh, a window dresser. Mm. He would do back in the old days in the towns. You know, you went down the street and you window shopped in the in the new clothing lines that came out of new furniture and all that stuff were placed in the windows for people walking by to see, and that was his job. So, and, and he must have done some advertising writing too. Yeah. And he's the guy that we really accredit for today's type of black and tan, the, what we, they called the medium-eared black mm -hmm. and tan. Yeah. But he was quite the advertiser, man. And I, you would read those ads, and he would be on a camp hunt on that, those rough bluffs in Iowa along the river, and, you know, and he could really paint a picture, yeah. a word picture. Yeah. So he was a real leader, a pioneer. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Call them parlor poodles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he wasn't going to, he wasn't beating around the bush much, was he? No. no, no. He's letting it be known. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but you did make a good point. And, and I think that it, it's true. And you kind of talked to, you kind of mentioned it uh, without probably even noticing it, but uh, we talk about these these field trial dogs. They're the certain style of dog, and then there's also these uh, the the typical coonhounds of those days with the long ears mm -hmm. and, and you know the bugle mouth and everything. But whenever you combine those two together, and people are working towards, uh, you can kind of get a pretty good coon dog. And I think that's kind of what happened uh, when you when you're you're breeding those kind of two things together. You got here many coon hunters had the mm -hmm. long eared bugle voice, cold trailing walking type of coon hound and the field trialers had the trimmer built racy type of hound that would cover the course in the fastest time and uh, good commercial breeders at that time were able to meld those two types together and they were able to have pr pretty successful lines by doing this i think that's exactly what happened you know because mm -hmm. uh, the the black and tan of course was you know the old standard coon hound you know and they were called a lot of them People called them sky lookers, you know, because they would take a couple steps and smell that coon scent, and they'd stop, throw their head straight their head and lift toward the moon, the and head. let out a big ball, and then they'd, you know, down to the ground, they'd go again and make a few more sniffs. <laughs> but they weren't they weren't ambush dogs, were they? No, they were. <laughs> they didn't have many ambush dogs then. Not at all. But you know, those dogs they kind of progressed with the pioneers, you know, across the country. And the Midwest became a big hotbed for all this, this field trial activity and all. Uh, you know, there was an event called the Transippi, and you'll find that in history as a big field trial. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, and, and then, of course, the Kenton you mentioned mm -hmm. earlier, Kenton National, which was actually the predecessor to the, the leafy oak. oak. Yeah. And, uh, and then, of course... The good folks at UKC decided to, that Leafy Oak was more of a, I may be jumping ahead, but little was more of a field trial and water race and all. And we want something for the coon hunters, the guys yeah. that want to compete, you know. And, yeah. and yeah. I think they good. had a lot of things going on at the Leafy Oak or the Kenton <laughs> oh, National. Yeah, <laughs> no doubt. 
<laughs> yeah, it wasn't a, it, it wasn't a place. It wasn't. Let's put it this way: it wasn't the ideal family vacation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, well, we are going to jump ahead a little bit. We, you know, we've we've talked about the uh, the inception of the field trials. We've gone through the '30s a little bit, but let's get to the the mid 1940s, and that's when things really start to pick up. And I'm trying to imagine working for for United Kennel Club at this time. You know, you, you right at at this time in 1946, you, we recognize three breeds. UKC does. You got the black and tans, the red bones, and the English. And uh, right here in the, in uh, just a short time frame, uh, you, you get a few more on board. In, in 1945, the Tree and Walker Coonhound breed branches from the English Coonhound breed. The Blue Tick Coonhounds branch from the English Coonhounds as well. And then the the plot hound, your uh, your breed of choice is uh, is recognized as a breed in 1946, and that's all all happening at once. And while that's going on, uh, there's a real push for for uh, for a different style of coon hunt at this time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that and in that in 1946 is the year there was a, a meeting and hunt held in Wycliffe, Kentucky, and uh, and the and. The history books would tell you that's kind of where the first seed of where uh, today's night hunts come from was from this meeting, and uh, and we've talked about it a little bit. Uh, we we've talked about the good things that the field trials did for coon hounds and progressing them, but there were also some downsides to it, and uh, and a lot of the coon hunters weren't happy because uh, people were kind of going away from coon hounds in these field trials, and they were using more of a, mm-hmm. a sight hound type dog mm-hmm. that was more based on speed than any sort of yeah. sending or or hunting yeah. ability. Yeah. Kind of mixed up dogs with greyhounds, whippets, and exactly. dogs like that for you know trying right. to build that speed. Yeah. You know, I speed was probably more important than anything really for the most part. Oh yeah, or yeah a, absolutely. And there was a lot of greyhound influence, as you said, Trevor. And I remember the first field trial I went to with my father, and I wrote about it in my book. That you know we were standing on this hill, and we were standing near the home tree where the dogs would, and they would have to come up over this hill. And then there was like about a 50-yard dash to the home tree. And, you know, these dogs come up over the hill, and they're these greyhound-type dogs. And, and, you know, and they're flying, and a lot of them run clear past the tree and all. (laughs) And in the distance, you can hear this, oh. (laughs) And I'm listening, and, and just a little bit, and these other dogs now, they come back to the tree and they're jumping up and down and here come these two long-eared old-fashioned black and tans right up over that hill right on that track and they're working it Mm -hmm. and right in oh and right into that tree sit down throw their heads back and tree you know and and that was the the contrast there you know of the two types yeah and you you mentioned uh jumping up on the tree and a lot of the old pictures you see of dogs treeing they are up off the ground like that yeah you see a lot of pictures like that yeah i think it was the type of dog maybe and they were so excited to see that lure and back in those days I, i think most of them were actually used a live raccoon in a cage which we don't yeah. do now mm-hmm. but uh yeah but that was one of my first experiences with that yeah. you know the two types of dogs right there you know i got the yeah. got the full picture <laughs> yeah you got a you got a front row seat to that one yeah yeah <clears throat> and there were some real influ- uh, going back to the meeting there was uh, some real influential people there and there are probably a few guys that we're going to mention over and over in this in this podcast a couple of the names mentioned were brooks mcgill mm-hmm. sam hawkins manfred craver archie weir 
Burl Fruits, and it says about 15 other interested hunters. And this group met together in Tupelo, Mississippi, and they actually uh, had a little name for themselves called the American Coon Hunters Association. I think a lot of people will be familiar mm-hmm. with that name mm-hmm. even today. ACHA. ACHA. Yep, yeah, ACHA. You know, and you're right. Brooks McGill is a name. Manford Craven and or uh, Craver and Brooks McGill are two names that were yeah. they're just synonymous to this right. sport. And they were both uh, Redbone fanciers. Yep. And the other name that comes in, Robert Graves, yep. comes in through the Alabama mm-hmm. side. See, there was a group at Columbia or at Alexander City, and and I would imagine from that account, Trevor, that those fifteen others or so probably included right. Robert Graves, yep. sure. John Carter, yep. some of the people that I was fortunate. I did. I never met Robert Graves. Yeah. His daughter was Manfred Craver's wife. Okay. Oh, okay. So there was a connection that. there. Manfred Craver, we would take just a second, yeah. was the manager of Autumn Oaks for many years. Good. Manfred was a very astute guy. I mean, he, he was a buttoned-up guy. You mm-hmm. know, he wore a tie and a jacket, a little fedora hat usually, and he was a student of, of the rules in fact, he wrote the first Rules yeah, Corner articles. Oh, nice. A super nice guy and was on staff as a field rep hmm. when I first became a field rep. Wow. So, so Manfred, you, you knew him personally? I knew Manford personally, and I can tell you that the prior president of, of UKC, Fred Miller, highly revered Manford Craver. Hmm. When Manford passed away, Fred drove from Kalamazoo to Greencastle, Indiana, you know, to attend Manford's uh, funeral mm-hmm. and really thought of But Manford was just a special guy. Yeah. He was a real special yeah. guy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's interesting. It's pretty neat that that's somebody that you would have known personally. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing down through the years that people used to ask me about the rules, and you guys are now interpreting those rules, and they change periodically and all, but I could always say, you know, well, and they'd say, well, why is this rule like this or that? And I could remember the rules committee meetings and, and sitting the intent, there the and intent, listening. Yeah. yeah, the intent behind mm-hmm. the rule. Yeah. And that helped me a it lot. Does. Mm-hmm. And, and Manford was that kind of guy. He had been there when the darn things were written <laughs> the first yeah. time around. So he knew, you know, and uh, that's. Do you think, you know, going back to that, speaking of writing rules, did, were those guys good at how they wrote those rules to be able to interpret them in the way they were intended? You know, that's that's a good question, Alan. And I can recall, and I don't know, I guess I've kind of been gifted, and I don't want to say that smugly at all, but gifted with editing things yeah. that didn't sound quite right. Mm-hmm. And I remember all those years on Roos Committee, the Roos Committee members would sit around that big boardroom table at UKC and go over the entire scorecard on a single weekend. And they, someone would present a rule change, and they'd throw it out there, and the language would be real tricky. It would be a lot of unclear meaning and stuff, you know. And so I, I kind of assumed the role of sitting back and listen to the discussions and all when everybody had their say and say, hey, guys, I hear what you're saying. What if you said it this way? Mm-hmm. Would that make sense? Mm-hmm. Now, they didn't always agree, but 
most cases. Mm -hmm. They said, yeah, you know. So there was a time when I was at UKC that I went back over the field trial water race, all those rules, and kind of tried to clear up those vague things, you Mm -hmm. know. But, uh, no, I think they did a pretty good job, you know. They were... Well, I know in today's, you know, today we do kind of pine over things like that to make mm. sure we try to write them in a way oh, that yeah. is is understood as it was and intended. And you do a great job. You do. <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, you just wonder about when they first wrote those first rules, you know, yeah. and that uh, if they came across the way they were intended. Mm. But, yeah. Well, when just, I spoke with John Carter, who was part of that, you, that's somebody that you also met. You went yeah. to his house, did you not met him? I was he was in Alabama? Alabama, Georgia, Alabama. Shorter, Alabama, near Montgomery. And through his son-in-law, Ted Johnson, told me, he said, you know, John Carter is my father-in-law. And John participated in the writing of the first set of rules for ACHA. I said, wow. I'd like, and I did meet him at the UKC Winter Classic. They mm-hmm. were there mm-hmm. in Albany, Georgia. So I was able to arrange on one of my trips to go by there. They invited me to stay over. I stayed two days there with them and talked to Mr. Carter at length. Yeah. And he he passed some, it wasn't very long after that, but he his mind was very bright. And uh, we talked about that. And he talked about how, the rules came to be the problems they were having with subjective judging, where a, a judge went out and said, I like this dog best. Yeah. He's the winner. Yeah. So, you know, and he said to me one thing I always remember. He said, when we came up with that system for the rules to determine who won the case, then we were on the right track. Yeah. It wasn't up to any handler or any one individual yeah. or whatever. The rule. What does the rule say? Yeah. You know, I think we're going to get to that a little bit. You made yeah. some notes, Trevor, about some of that, you know, how some of them, uh, you know, how the first rules were, you know, just, it was very subjective. It was one, one person's opinion, really not a scoring system in place for it. It was more of subjective and, right. and somebody's opinion of what was, what was the best dog, but yeah. Which was the best hunter, which yeah. dog had the best yeah. mouth, Yeah, yeah. you know, all this. You know, you, we go back to what we were talking about, you know, that meeting that was held in uh, Tupelo, Mississippi, and I was just there just a, a, like two weeks ago, and, yeah. and I thought we had already made some of these notes, you know, and, and when I was there, I was kind of, kind of thinking, well, I was there for a rules meeting of sorts, you know, it wasn't uh, uh, for one of our other segments, one of our Beagle programs, yeah. but I really thought a whole lot about that, you know, and you... You think okay here I am. Yeah, I would I would have loved to I don't know. Just something about this. It would have just been neat to be, be a fly a, on a the fly wall. Fly on the wall right. is right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just to listen to what they what you know their ideas and things they talked about. Well, as you get older, Alan, you'll find yourself, I'm sure, in YouTube Trevor, as you see uh, uh, conversations online and stuff and guys they're trying to be helpful and mm-hmm. they're trying to spread the history, but they're so far off the base. You know, you just want to, sometimes it's very frustrating, but yeah. you can't be a know-it-all and you yeah. can't, yeah. you know, but to, to actually have known some of these people, cause you mentioned the forties. I was born in 1946. That was a busy year then. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, uh, 
And the Coonhound magazines were always in my house, in my home as yeah. a kid as I yeah. started reading. Yeah. But you know that was a that was a pretty busy time. You yeah. know, yeah. we got our first UKC registered dog in '54. Wow. So, but but then to think about all these breeds coming in, all these associations being formed. Dr. Ed Furman was a busy guy. Yeah. He was, he was the president of the UKC at that time. Yeah. And, uh, and, and especially by today's standards, things as far as bringing in new breeds, especially of like a, like a, like a, like coonhounds or a group yeah. like that, yeah. you know, in the same group that, that was a lot going on in a matter sure. of, of no time, but yeah. yeah. So you mentioned that meeting in Wycliffe uh, or Wycliffe, Kentucky, you know, but, uh, they also had a wild coon hunt that happened there on that, uh, at that uh, place where uh, uh, where you mentioned here, according to the ACHA website, that was con- considered as the first uh, world championship. Yeah. That was in, what, 47? 40, uh, 40, uh, it, says, it said 1946. Six? 46, yeah. Okay. yeah. yeah. And yeah. a dog named Kate's Day and Leroy Campbell, a red yeah. bone, won that first yeah. hunt. And, and it, then, it's interesting about the red bones. We mentioned them earlier about the field trials. They mm-hmm. were very dominant in the field trials. And then when the UKC, I'm jumping ahead, I guess, but the first UKC night champion was, was a red, a red bone. bone. Yeah. You know, so it's that breed, you know, really was a four in, in the forefront. Yeah. But going back to what you're saying about the 40, mid 40s there, the red bone, black and tan, and the English were the three breeds. Yeah. Until these others came along. Mm-hmm. So I guess there was a lot of red dogs around. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And after that first one there, we uh, you talked about the one in Kentucky there. There were a few other hunts in Columbus, Ohio in 1947 and Jackson, Mississippi in 1948. Yeah. And you talked about it a little bit, but there uh, there was a lot of issues with these first night hunts. You know, they were, a, they were a step forward from the field trials, I think the hunters thought, but there were still some issues. Um, and, and the biggest issue was that there were no points or rules to base anything off of. Yeah. The non-hunting judge was going out there, usually with a cast of four dogs somewhere today, and without ever having heard these dogs, uh, yeah. trying to figure out which dog was the best, they've never laid they never laid eye on these. Yeah, dogs. let's talk about that for a minute. Can you imagine? So I'm judging a cast of dogs, and and I'm a non-hunting judge, and what I say is going to go here. My opinion is going to mm-hmm. be best, but really think about it. If if I'm I'm hearing your dogs for the first time, I might not even know what I'm whose dog it is. It takes no. how long does it take to figure out whose dog is who and what dog is right. what, right. and then I'm I can't imagine if I'm going to no, really. Wow. Do a good job of figuring out what the best dog is here. Yeah, and how do you have any? And I don't. And maybe they hunted all night. I'm not sure how long they hunted here. Probably uh, at know. least three hours, maybe four. Yeah. yeah, you would think because the first night hunts, you know, were were at least three four hours long. You know, but yeah, yeah. that's yeah. that's yeah, it's kind of mind blowing. And, and 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 what if one of the handlers didn't agree? You know. We, we 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 now have some pretty specific rules. Do you, you know, imagine written they out. didn't agree? Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and here this wide open. This that yeah. was which yeah. funny. You mentioned says right here that uh, the biggest issue that came up of these first hunts is you couldn't get judges after the first few yeah. because they <laughs> they were just tired of they beat of all them the down. backlash they got. Probably yeah. a lot of one timers. Yeah, I guarantee yeah. one and done. Yeah. Not doing that again. Oh yeah. man! And, yeah. and to bring up Manfred Graver again, uh, there yeah. was a, a little bit of a write up that he made uh, talking about uh, an event that he attended at Leafy Oak National. And uh, here's here's his quote. Here it says, "My Lindy Flyer was in the final cast with another red bone and two walkers." There were no rules, no points. 
<laughs> My redbone Lindy struck and trailed and treed, treed two coons by herself. One of the walkers was not in on the coon until after we were at the tree. He never opened on the track, and I'm not even sure if he even treed. The other two didn't come in at all. My redbone was nine years old and a reasonably close hunter, and the walker stayed out of sight. There were not other tracks struck, nothing else treed, and I lost. The, ju- <laughs> the judge oh, said well. he liked the way the walker got around through the woods better than mine did. <laughs> no other explanation was given. And can you imagine a guy saying, I'm good, okay. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be a pretty tough pill to swallow. It would be, uh, wouldn't it? Tree two coons, and, and yeah. just because another dog stayed out of sight a little more. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It'd be pretty tough. It, like, I guess, yeah. The thing Liked comes, how he barked around in there, I guess. Yeah. yeah. It comes to mind to me, if you guys have ever been on a cast with somebody that absolutely did not know the rules at all, mm-hmm. a novice or whatever, mm-hmm. and I can remember a situation back home at our club in West Virginia, a fellow was hunting in his first hunt, and his dog did tree a coon, but he never struck the dog. He never treated the dog. He didn't do anything in accordance with the rules, but his dog treated a coon, so he was highly irate that he didn't win the cast. <laughs> yeah. And you tried to explain to them, this is why you didn't win. They don't want to hear that. Uh, the bottom line is my dog treated a coon, so therefore he's a winner. Yours didn't, uh, and therefore he's the loser. Uh, and what, where would we be without rules? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you know, speaking of rules, and right in during that time, 1948, here was that timeline. You mentioned Robert Graves from uh, Robert or Alexander City, Alabama, you know, met with a group of hunters in the area, and they started working on rules for a night hunting club. Yeah. You know, and he formed that, uh, he founded the East Alabama Night Hunters Association in 1949, Robert Graves. Yeah. Are you? A name you hear over and over again, Robert Graves, Manfred Graver, uh, a couple of these guys. And we're fast forwarding to 1951 here, and it says the East Alabama Club had just hosted an ex- a successful ACHA World Championship, and a group of men met at the cafe in Alexander City. Yep. Uh, four of those men in attendance are ones that we've talked about here. Uh, Robert Graves, Manfred Craver, you mentioned John Turner earlier, That's and right. Joe Jones. And uh, this meal mm-hmm. uh, with, these, with this group of individuals turned into what really became uh, – the real first set of night hunt rules being put together and in place that would uh, mm-hmm. that would feature hunts based on a set of rules that would be able to uh, evaluate dogs uh, subjectively with a points based scoring system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I remember, and I don't know if this is a misprint. It may not be. I don't. I'm not familiar with John Turner. The gentleman I knew was John Carter, oh. but he was part of that group, and there could have been a John Turner yeah. also. But I remember him saying distinctly, after they did that and they wrote these rules and all, then he said, we were on our way. Yeah. You know? The foundation they just, had they been just laid. knew this is what yeah. we've been needing all along. Yeah. Surely they would have taken some of their own dogs and tried those instead yeah. of just writing them out, right? Yeah, well, it, it kind of says oh, they— Oh, they did. They yeah, tried yeah, them yeah. for sure. And they had— Mr. Carter told me that one of the guys, I think Robert Grace was the guy that was kind of the scribe. When they'd come up with these rules and everything, he was the guy that kind of put sense to it, put it on paper, made it yeah. work, mm-hmm. you know. And I did an article about this one time, and I don't know if you guys saw it, but it talked about how at that club they checked entries. Do you remember that? Yeah. Reading that? Yeah, I did. I thought that was yeah. interesting yeah. because they, uh, out of, I don't know how many 60 didn't read. They had a 
guy at the club that could climb. Yeah. Yeah. And most, no, they came up with like 60% of the den trees they made did not have a coon. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Us yeah. coon hunters do not want to hear that. No. <laughs> and there's another story about that. I don't know if you want to hear, but the club at Milstead, Illinois, one time conducted an in-depth study mm-hmm. on weather conditions, wind, barometric pressure, moon, how many dogs were in the cast and all that. And, you know, so the clubs back in those early days were quite active mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, but anyway, that's, yeah. Yeah. that's just an aside there. I yeah. You know, so it, it notes here, you know, they worked on those, uh, worked on a new set of rules and, and everything to evaluate dogs on a points-based scoring system, you know, but they would implement a rule, then go to the field and hunt uh, to test and see if they needed modified and such. And then it goes yeah. on to say, you know, that in, in that fall, or in the fall of that year, Robert then sent a copy of the rules they had compiled to Manfred Craver. There you go. Yep. Oh. Manfred. Says, yeah. Manfred and Charles Nugent. That's Charlie name Nugent. That's yeah. Great guy, Redbone guy. Yeah. Knew him back in the day. See, Char- so did I. Great. Now, this yeah. is kind of my, where, you know, Trevor and I were talking about when I saw this name, Charles Nugent, and I knew he was involved early on, but he was, he was a officer of the Redbone Association. He was actually the one that really talked me into accepting a position in as in office awesome. as in the Redbone Association. Yeah. And I didn't want to. I was pretty young at the time. I was in my mid twenties and I felt I was too young, but I remember he took me off to the side and he was also from Greencastle, I think yeah, in that think area, so. Cloverdale yeah, yeah. or Greencastle. Mm-hmm. I forget his wife's name, but I still remember right. that where we were when he kind of took me off to yeah. the side and, and, and encouraged was... me to to, you know, to to do it. But yeah, that was Charles Nugent. Well Hats off to Charlie. Yeah, he well, did a good job. Well, yeah, I just, uh, and he was, he was, I don't know how old he was, but I would say probably oh, yeah. in his 80s at that time already. Right. But, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Manford and Charles it says they took a couple weeks to go over that first set of rules. And, uh, and really, they didn't make many changes, just some maybe some clarification, Steve, like you talked about, sometimes good to do, mm-hmm. some, yeah. a different set of eyes looking over something, yeah. you're able to yeah. clarify mm-hmm. it. They were able to simplify it down and make it a little more uh, legible, maybe, for, for folks. And uh, that, ver- that first version of the rules that they kind of uh, made public, 11 rules featured 573 words on a on a, the back of an 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper. The other side was... Uh, this, the scorecard, and on the other side was the the rules. Like, similar Let's go to what back we have to today. those days. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I kind of uh, compared it to what the scorecard look uh, looks oh. like this year. Our, yeah. We we have a new scorecard for uh, for twenty twenty three with our new rules that went into effect this this year, and uh, ours are now uh, fourteen by eleven and uh, has just shy of 3,500 words on the back of it. So <laughs> there's wow. been some extra yeah. uh, verb verbiage yeah. uh, put on yeah. there. I uh, see. Uh, but uh, let's see. This is, uh, there were immediate results as entries went up in earnest, and uh, and of course we talked about it earlier. Judges became a lot easier to find now that there were actually some uh, some rules to go by and not yeah. just uh, yeah. a, a free yeah. for all. Yeah. Uh, but during these times, you know, we talked a lot about what was going on, on the on the ACHA side of it in these first night hunts. But uh, at this time, UKC wasn't just idle; they had kind of uh, uh, been tied with the National Cooners Association. And I tried to do some more studying on this online. I couldn't find much information on it. But during that time, uh, they they were involved with the NCA, as they called them, which was made up of an independent group of coon hunters. And uh, and basically what UKC did for them was promote the NCA and their events. Mm-hmm. 
at donate free advertising and, and in return the NCA required that the dogs that compete in their events must be UKC registered. Yeah. Yeah, as I could read that, you know, from that all those uh, resources that you mentioned before at UKC when I was there, uh, you know, a lot of that history, and you go back, there was quite a strong relationship there between this NCA. And I'm not sure, I don't remember who the principals were in that organization. I don't know if Lester Nance was maybe involved in that a little bit. Seems like Maybe that. he was, because I know he was like one of the real, maybe we'll get to that, but he was one of the guys that really pushed, you know, for, for registration of the Walker dog as mm. a treating Walker. Right. But he also was an innovator with the bench shows. He was. He actually wrote the first set of bench show rules, right. the standards, basically. And that show, I believe, was held at Leafy Oaks or at least yeah. the, or Kenton, yeah. whatever. Yeah. But those first NCA events, they, they kind of got started up with an event they called the Mayflower National. That was in May of 1951, and you mentioned Lester Nance. He actually won that first hunt with a, a tree and walker he named NNK Sparky. Sparky, yeah. Um, it was. Well, uh, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say that the second one they had was just later that year in September in Arcadia, Indiana, one that they deemed uh, Tree and Walker Days. Yeah. And uh, Lester Nance was the master of hounds at that one, but I couldn't figure out who won that event. There was no mention of who won it, but then it also mentioned the third event, uh, and the final one that it mentioned was uh, another Mayflower National the following May, in which the winner was again Sparky Lester Nance. Yeah. He, he doubled up on them there at the, the Mayflower <laughs> National. Yeah, the only thing I was going to point out that kind of uh, kind of I noticed right away is you know Manfred Craver was uh, involved in writing kind of writing the rules, so his dog was in contention to win at one of those first ones. Here you have got Lester Nance involved. He's also one oh, of the yeah. first ones. So yeah, it was yeah. Well, those were the guys that were real serious about yeah. that and. And so many people weren't back in those days, uh, you know, a lot of grade dogs at the mm -hmm. hunts, non-registered dogs. And it took a while, you know, for UKC to convince these people that there was value in a registered dog, you know. But when those trophies started showing up and guys started going to these events and coming back, because back in the day, a 12-inch night hunt trophy won by your dog was a big deal. Right. right. It was a big deal. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, and then the magazines and so forth, the pictures would come out. And I said, it's a yeah. lot of pride. They, they a lot, a of, lot pride. of pride in those days. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. And kind of during these same times, we keep mentioning the same people, but you can imagine uh, Dr. Uh, Furman in those days probably getting his ear bent quite often that uh, – you know, mm -hmm. we have these associations now. You're, you're relying on NCA to put on these events. But uh, there was a lot of people that just wanted UKC to put on their own UKC yeah. last night. Huh? And it mentioned people like the the usual suspects, Robert Graves, Manfred Craver. And there's some new names here, so I feel like we I should point them out real quick. we got Robert Browning, Floyd Butler, Bryce Carnahan, Claude Philippi. I'm sorry, I might have uh, yeah, said that's that That's correct. Uh, Wayne Cox, Mark Decker, Roy DeLauder. Robert Everett, Homer Hill, Jim Ingham, Walter, Walter Roll, and Emerson Opdyke, uh, among some others. But that's a that's a big list of names there. Well, almost all of those names are people that I met personally wow. when I was young. Floyd so, Butler being one of them. Floyd Butler, he was the secretary of the eventually the ACHA, I believe. But he's the one that held that first event at in England, Illinois. Yeah. Illinois. Mm -hmm. 
uh, just passed See, his, Robert Browning. Yeah. Robert was from in Ohio. Used to he be was a field a, rep as well. Uh, he was a, uh, a black and tan fancier, mm-hmm. uh, was very, uh, had won autumn Oaks, I think the national grand with the national, uh, Claude Philippi was very active in the train Walker, that first train Walker breeders uh, association, along with Lester. Wayne Cox was a black and tan breeder from mommy, Ohio. He was, uh, very prominent. Uh, the Mark Decker, I don't remember exactly, um, Robert Everett. I remember him, Homer Hill. Well, Jim Ingram was a black and tan fancier. I remember him real. And Emerson Opdyke was also a very prominent person back in those sort of days. I mean, I can't say I was bosom buddies with those guys, but I met them and shook their hand. Mm Mm-hmm. Cool. So well, I still have in the something. in my uh, office or my desk. I have the a copy of the first license that was issued to that club, the Ingram Club, uh, and it was Floyd Butler had signed off on that. <laughs> no, sir. Yeah. Well, and 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 they had some good points. I, I, they they had a couple different points pointed out here as to why they wanted it. the first thing. Um, they felt like with with any in, in a lot of these events just any dogs could compete didn't have to be ukc registered and it was causing to uh some poor breeding habits people mm-hmm. were uh, uh breeding too loosely maybe with uh pointers uh, bird dogs beagles mm-hmm. foxhounds uh, getting a lot of different things out there um and it was having and, and uh, the, the biggest effect that a lot of people were seeing were in their their breed of choice uh, a lot like uh, red bone for if, if you make a cross and it came out red You'd be able to single register it as Redbone, and there was a lot of different influences mm-hmm. in there. We talked about how dominant Redbones were at the time, and and those influences probably didn't help the breed that was already doing well. Maybe I don't know, but they were seeing some negative effects from that. Uh, hunters wanted uh, night hunts by UKC, where their hounds' ancestors ancestors had already been uh, registered some for almost fifty years at this point already. Uh, they wanted to compete against other purebred dogs, maybe other dogs of, of their breed, and they wanted the chance to to earn points in championships and hunts. And I think those are all pretty fair points and and mm-hmm. points of concern. Yeah. And that's what built UKC was, you know, out of that desire of those coon hunting hunters to have some kind of an organization, some kind of a source where they could get recognition. I uh, long time ago said that I, if I had any epitaph on my tombstone, it would be recognition is the name of the game. Yeah. I think the guys have always wanted that recognition. That's what you guys do so well right here, to be able on Sunday morning to walk up here in front of a crowd of my peers and all and say, man, I am the national champion. That's It's huge. Mm-hmm. It's bigger than money. It's bigger than anything else. Yeah, so so with all those people kind of of in his ear, there were a lot of meetings going on through late 1952 and early 1953, and I think we're kind of getting towards the time frame now where we're we're just 70 years out now, so we're about to see some things happen now, and uh, and it, it talks about uh, some of the people who had who had the strongest urge, and that uh, Dr. Furman uh, was really taking. Uh, listening to a lot, and that's Robert Graves and Manfred Craver, and the things that they kept telling him is that you don't need to work, you know, you need to work on getting the events scheduled and everything, but you don't need to work on getting a whole nether set of rules. We already have those. Let's just use the ACHA rules 
they're new to people anyways. If they have to learn a whole nether set, it's just going to cause issues. And it actually worked. The UKC decided to use that first set that had, had dropped for their own license events. Sure. Yeah. yeah. If it ain't broke, Yeah, and when we, when we look at those rules today, we think, <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember there at the office, I'm sure you've seen it, we had out in the display case, uh, we had uh, had a picture of that scorecard for a long time. You oh, see yeah. the same pictures you see in the yeah. in the first hundred years of UKC, right. that publication they put out, mm-hmm. you know, but it's uh sure. Yeah, it's pretty interesting to uh to see some of those first rules. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do, do we want to talk yeah, about the, the scorecard yeah. right now? Yeah. I'm kinda looking at it here and it's it's completely I mean, it's it's way different than the one you'd see today where Basically, you were just tallying, striking tree points for whatever reason and scoring them based on what the dog does. Uh, there's a lot more that goes in consideration here. And instead of uh, kind of uh, 25, 50, 75, 100, there's a, yeah. it's a kind of an accumu- accumulation of points yeah. by things that not only the dog does, but the handler does. Yeah, throughout so the what hunt. is that handler obedience in the handler? What is five I points I think it's there? the way the dog handled, you know, on the leash. And did the dog come when the handler called mm-hmm. him and... And you know, or well, you know, just basic yeah. fundamental yeah. obedience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Say. yeah. And voice I, hound, or hound he, voice, the voice they gauge the voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the judge, well, there was a point system here of uh, of sorts where they would could. I I don't know if the if the dog was an obedient handler. In other words, he he handled well. I guess he got five points. Yeah. But maybe if what if he was so so did he get two points? <laughs> I don't, yeah, uh, I don't you know, know. I, I don't know. But uh, but that's, then it goes into that's OB- where clarification of the rule. How many how many words did they have? <laughs> yeah. Well, we already got yeah. a, we got a question on the card. Let's <laughs> yeah, take it back we, to the master yeah. hands. <laughs> how well the fencing did they yeah, all fencing, handle yeah. fences? Watering. Well? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of cool things on here. Uh, yeah. You know, dogs got points based on a false trail, false tree, 15 points on babbling. You know, they got a certain amount of points for not only treeing, but holding the tree. Yeah. You know, that yeah. was a thing then. It's a, yeah. it's, it's a really neat scorecard. And I, I think probably whenever we post this this podcast on our social media platforms, maybe we'll be able to to post a picture of this old scorecard for people to reference and look at because it, it is really cool to see this. It yeah. would be a hoot to go out and try to conduct a cast under these rules. <laughs> I wonder what you'd come up with. I don't know. It yeah. would be interesting. You know, talking sure. about holding tree, which we still have that today, you know, but you just don't see that that much. Even, even I think from when I first started, you just don't see dogs leaving trees like you did back then No, in, in today's fact, world. Yeah. That's part of the evolution of yeah. the dogs, you know, because back in the day, getting a tree dog that would stay treed was a big deal. Well, that's, you know, like my grandfather, he hunted with two dogs. One was basically a track dog and the other was a tree dog. Yeah. And uh, that was the case sure. a lot of times, Absolutely. you know, and going back, I I've, since my tenure at UKC, you know, I always like to listen to or ask the old guys, you know, what it was like back in the day as compared to the, today. And, and we won't get into that, you know, but, you know, a lot of them say they, you know, think they were better back then for whatever reason. But uh, I, I remember I talked to uh, uh, John, or, uh, uh, Mr. Rafe, the English guy, John Rafe. John Rafe. And I remember it really kind of stuck to me what he talked about then. You know, he said it had huge numbers, but if you got to remember, in those times with the huge numbers, 
having a dog that would stay tree and stay treed was huge back in those days because he said you would compete against dogs that might in a three-hour hunt might never make a tree or stay ever trace stay treed yeah yeah and to think yeah yeah well that was people that just enjoyed uh being out with the dogs apparently that would tolerate that kind of dog why would i drive to a hunt somewhere knowing that I had that kind of dog. Yeah. Did I have hopes that he would learn from the other dog? Yeah, and my strange. grandfather passed away, you know, a good number of years ago, and I wish I could have that conversation with him today. You know, why, how, you know, one to, one would run the track and another one to tree. You know, I, what happened to the, what happened to the track dog? What was it doing when the other one was treeing? Was it out looking for another track or was it just milling around or what did they do, you know? I don't yeah. Know. Yeah, but that yeah, going back to this scorecard from the Ingraham, Illinois, 1953, that first wild coon hunt. That's uh, yeah, and then you know it does have the it does have the uh, the rules written on it as well. Our partners at Dogtra have just launched an exclusive program available only to active UKC competitors. So if you've competed any time this year or plan to compete in any future UKC events, you can qualify to receive exclusive benefits through Dogtra. Take advantage of this exclusive program and become a Dogtra competition field staff today. To sign up, visit dogtra.com forward slash Dogtra competition field staff. That's dogtra.com forward slash Dogtra competition field staff. All right, so middle of the year here, it looks like they're finally ready. June 6, 1953 was the first UKC licensed wild coon hunt that was held in Defiance, Ohio. But this one was more what we would call a pilot event now, uh, kind of testing the rules that were kind of temporary. Um, uh, but UKC points were awarded there, but uh, on, on kind of a pilot uh, level. And uh, the winning dog, Giles Tuck, a plot hound owned by Claire Giles of Springfield, Ohio, won that first uh, first trial uh, uh ukc licensed coonhound event yeah you know that that's kind of amazing to me uh back in those days in those early days the plot figured very prominently mm-hmm. and it was pretty amazing that they did because they weren't long out of the mountains of north carolina mm-hmm. when guys like dale brandenburger and all and different ones uh, uh mr Patton from iowa and all went and got these bear dogs out of the mountains and brought them to the Midwest and started hunting coons with them. Mm-hmm. But they did have a tree instinct, I guess. But then to think, you know, back then of red bones and plots, which now, you know, usually in sheer numbers, they're on the, on the bottom of the heap sure. as far as, you know, the other breeds. But yeah, absolutely. to me, that was pretty amazing that they, they figured that well, you know, early yeah. on. Yeah. And they weren't through yet, were they? They weren't. They weren't. <laughs> I do want to mention an excerpt from uh, the 1953 July-August issue of Bloodlines. Uh, they're talking about, they're used to, it's, it looks like to me, looking at a couple of old, they used to kind of do a write-up with some of these first events, and it, and it kind of is cool to look at. And the, the little write-up with this event these points are scored on the basis of the dog to produce under actual hunting conditions out in the woods and fields. This is where real coon hounds are made and where they are judged on their ability as real trailers and tree dogs. They are on their own here. We do not see any whippets or greyhounds leading the pack by eyesight and noise. <laughs> no, it is here that blood, breeding, and training tell the story of the true hound. 
And I think it holds up today. You know, in some of the other programs and segments out there with different dog events, um, and I don't know which one specifically. I'm not going to call of any of them out, but uh, coon hounds and the coon, I think a, a, a night hunt event, it stays pretty pure to what coon hunters want at the end of the day. And I think this usually the scoring system uh, in place usually figures out who the best coon hound uh, was on that night. Obviously not 100% of the time, but I think the rules in place and the way it's set up, we usually get the best dog at the end of the night to figure out who had the best coon dog that night. Certainly designed for that to be the goal of it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and, and again, you got to commend these guys for having that kind of vision mm-hmm. and a desire, you know, to, to let's do something that really tells us which who had the best dog. Mm-hmm. You know, we like to brag if the dog, our name's on the collar, then that makes it a special dog. But who really did have the best dog here? Well, the rules say that old Joe was the best dog. He treated two coons. The mm-hmm. other dog's only treated one. Yeah. You know, know, Frank was just running before. around. Yeah. Running around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. He might have, Frank, he might have barked more, but Flyer treated more coons. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Flyer would have been a winner with these rules. Yeah. yeah. And then and then the big day happened. September 18th and 19th, 1953, the first official UKC license night hunt. Ingraham, Illinois, we talked about it a little bit. Uh, we've got the, you know, the scorecard they use there. You talk about having the, the license yeah. there framed up at your desk. Uh, we got the results here in front of us. It happened. It finally happened. It says it was widely advertised. Yeah. Can and I mention I was seven years old? Seven years old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I'm not ashamed of my age. Yeah, I, I wish I were younger, but <laughs> I, I, I never really thought about that until lately. But man, I came along right when all these things really started yeah. popping. Yeah. You were born into it. You didn't yeah, have a chance. No. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you guys mentioned Floyd Butler a little bit, but mm. he was a huge force in getting this hunt in Ingraham, mm-hmm. and uh, and yeah, he should be commended for that. Putting on the first official UKC license night hunt over that weekend, thirty-three total entries that weekend. Um, and we got a list of the 29 of them. We don't have all 33. Uh, but what I thought was interesting, and we talked about how the points were, it's kind of not uh, not kind of a cast score system, really, it, as much as it is an accumulation of points as you go based on, on a mm-hmm. bunch of different factors and variables. And uh, it would take the entire weekend into account. The winners from this first event would have had to do good in both casts to win this entire mm-hmm. event. It took both nights into account. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and it's interesting there. You know, they was uh, they hunted for three nights. You know, and it was that uh, that's how they determined their winner and and an accumulative score. And and I'll, I'll plug this in. I I pulled this. Uh, we had like a uh, I forget the little game we had for youth nationals several years ago, where I used to kind of before you came along. You know, this was one of my questions for. I had a choice of answers. You know, and and uh, you know how many points the first dog score or the winning dog scored at the first ever UKC hunt was it. 225 or was it 450 or was it 675 or was it 3850 <laughs> well nobody got that <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> a lot of points yeah it is that's a lot of points yeah. you're alluding here to yeah. our first our first ever winner yeah first place champion yeah. overbeck's lucky yeah. owned by elwood overbeck of jackson mississippi 3850 points over yeah. the weekend and second place we might as well go ahead and say it before we look at the full results here Brandenburger's Big Lucky, another plot hound, two plots, first and second. 
Uh, Lucky was owned by Carl Brandenberger of Millstadt, Indiana. It had a total of 3749 so it was pretty close. Pretty close, yeah, for yeah. three nights of hunting, you know. Yeah, yeah. actually Dale Brandenburg. Yeah. Yeah, but that, well, you know, um, something a little aside here, did you notice that both winners, the first two dogs named were, were Lucky? <laughs> yeah. I guess I didn't notice that till right now. Wow. Uh, I guess that goes pretty intuitive. They said, Let's name this one Lucky. He's going to make the history books. <laughs> yeah, that would have been Dale Brandenburg. Yeah, Dale. Yeah, sorry and they were that. brothers. Carl and Dale yeah. were brothers. Sorry so you're close. That. Yeah. Close. Yeah. Uh, but it's a bunch of, it says the magazine, uh, a bunch of Coonhound enthusiasts would be surprised at how many of the winners we would recognize from that first weekend. And just going through some of the top 10 here, you know. We talked about uh, we talked about Elwood Overbeck. There's Dale Brandenberger, uh, James Merchants mentioned on here. There's Lester Nance, uh, Junior Gibson, Floyd Butler. A lot of names on here that uh, that would uh, be very historic in the history of, of coon hunting. Yeah, all sure. these were about two generation, good generation ahead of me. But I would have so loved to have hunted or competed against like guys like a James Merchant. They say he was just a fierce competitor. Oh yeah, you mm -hmm. know, and uh, that well. You and know, maybe I wouldn't have liked James. I don't know. Probably not, because <laughs> James was very competitive, you know. And in the early days, he was the guy, one of those guys that kind of grasped the bull by the horns and said, this is a game, you know, that I'm going to play with gusto, yeah. you know. And he has a dog that ends up winning that other world. But you, there was no UKC World Championship at that yeah. time, you know. Right. And, mm -hmm. So he won the ACHA World Championship three times in four years with wow. a, a dog mm -hmm. called Merchant's Bolly. So, you know, that sparked, that created a spark in a lot of guys that wanted to do that, mm -hmm. you know. And, and a couple, a couple, uh, uh, just looking at the breed breakdown from this first event, it kind of, I got a good chuckle looking at it here. The the leading breed, so only 29 of the 33 are listed, but I think we can paint a pretty good picture of what it looked like at the event. Eight red dogs, they led the way. Uh, second was black and tans with seven. Six blue ticks were in attendance. Four English hounds. Two tree and walkers, only two tree and walkers, and two plots, it says. First wow. and second. They did pretty good. Yeah. They did. The <laughs> few, the proud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, you know, before registration, the walkers were not, you know, they were foxhounds, basically. Mm -hmm. They you were. Know, they were. And it wasn't long after, you know, uh, Motley in Missouri was one of the innovators and Lester Nance and those guys. And they came along with, they had these dogs that would tree and, and they started to breed them, you know, but. That pendulum really swung yeah. far yeah. to the right or left, whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not long after this, uh, we, you guys, kind of, or Steve, you kind of alluded to the, the rules committee and, and kind of how that came about. But uh, uh, Manfred Craver, again, as a, as a name that's credited with orchestrating the first rules committee. And uh, it makes good sense. You know, we, we wanted to have something put together to get input from the hunters that are competing out in, in these hunts. Uh, you know, I say it all the time when people are talking about uh, uh, rule input and say, well, why doesn't UKC just change the rule if they think it should be like that that way? 
we like to give the hunters that are out at competing in it. I can't remember the last time I competed in a night hunt. You're out there actively competing in the hunt. What are you seeing? I'd like to hear some firsthand yeah. feedback on mm-hmm. on that. And and Manfred was probably ahead of his time in thinking that way, that right. the hunters should have a huge say in it because they're the ones out actively competing in it. And uh, the but those first uh, those first committees gave those first committees gave the hunters that opportunity. And uh, they're pretty similar to how we were today. The first ones I hear are from reading were maybe a little more chaotic than the the <laughs> ones that I've been able to sit in on yeah. because there was uh, basically uh, any any breed association could send any amount of of folks to those committees <laughs> and uh, kind of turned into uh, uh, shouting a matches or all yeah. different things. But well, as you're talking there, and you mentioned Manford and having remembered Manford about the the man. I think of words, organization, absolutely, a very organized individual. Uh, integrity, I think, without question. Uh, presentation, you know, he wanted it done right, and how it was presented was very important. So, you know, our sport, it's very fortunate to have leaders like that. I'm thinking back, this goes way back, to the framers of the the articles of government that we sure. live under today in mm-hmm. our country, where would we be without the Thomas Jeffersons and the Benjamin Franklins mm-hmm. and all those people that were great orators, but they yeah. were great thinkers. And, yeah. and, you know, uh, I think it was Franklin or maybe that said, you know, here's the document, but you'll lose it if you don't take care of it. Yeah. Well, I think that's the way these guys were. Yeah. And I, I, I can, Speak for, for uh, you know, Manford. He was definitely that kind yeah. of guy. Yeah. yeah. I think it takes a special kind of person. And I tell, I, I don't know if I, um, there's a there's a lot of people that can uh, see that something's wrong and think that something needs to be done or changed or improved. Mm. But it takes a special person to come and tell you how to improve it or have some, yeah. some special ideas on how to and not be afraid to put their opinion out there and not be afraid mm-hmm. for people to scoff at it or, or maybe shoot it down at right. first. But uh, during this time, we've mentioned a, lo- a lot of people who, who weren't afraid to kind of put their neck out there and have some inventive ideas, and look what it's led to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. you mentioned a great point, and I'm going to assume your roles, guys. At, when you interpret the rules— don't you feel a great responsibility oh. of saying, look, you know, you get that letter or email or that phone call, and you're the guy that needs to, to say thus and so, okay? There's a lot of responsibility with that because I don't want to put something out there that 10 guys are coming right back, but, Steve, you missed it because it's this right. and it's that and right. it's that, and you didn't think about this or that. Right. So there's a lot of interest thinking and that's you guys heads are nodding yeah i know you're you know, you're you're you know we and talk, I, we talk about that a lot we do yeah yeah do. and I, I think the average guy out there as i say at the forks of the creek probably doesn't think about that a lot yeah you know they say well they want the answer right. you know but those answers are there's a lot of thought that goes into those answers yeah and, and i think that's exact and manford would be guy if you had ten guys in a room, you'd probably pick Manford to be the guy that thought most about that and and put the most thought into yeah. his answer. Mm-hmm. Right, you know. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. No, you're 100% right about that. And, and we do talk about that a whole lot yeah. today still. And it is, it is highly, very important. Yeah. It's, sure is. It, I, I get a lot of, I get a, obviously we, we get a lot of rules questions. It's probably always been like that, but even today, I, even I, I like to just take my time when answering them because you're right. And giving an official interpretation is, it's a lot of pressure when you're writing the Coonan advisor column and you know, it's an extension of the rule book. Every month you have to write an extension of the rule book. That's all. A lot of pressure to make sure you don't mess up and and i go over that with alan we have a lot of in-depth in-depth discussions on uh, on different rules and and how people could interpret them and and look back at past uh articles and and advisor columns and everything and mm-hmm. we've had some pretty lengthy discussions on mm-hmm. different rules and and yeah the consequences that can come from just mm-hmm. making one wrong interpretation yeah yeah you know we're, we might be kind of be jumping the gun here when we talk about that but another thing i find interesting is going back and reading some of those those rule interpretations and some of the, a lot of the rules from way back and what they wrote and how many of those are still, we still have that same exact rule and the interpretation has remained for all these years. Yeah. I find that very interesting. Yeah, I'm kind of jumping the gun here, I nope. guess, but uh, no, we're, we're talking about rules. I love talking about rules. Though. <laughs> but well, I think you, we're, we're all mm. rules junkies. Yeah. You know, I'm a rules animal. Yeah. yeah. When people say, oh, well, what difference does it make? I said, the rule says, yeah, yeah. you know, and yeah. that it, it's the rule. Mm-hmm. I yeah. mean, why do we have rules exactly. if we're yeah. not going to follow them? Mm-hmm. And so I've always been a very rules oriented yeah. guy and maybe too. to a fault, but I'm, you know, and, and thinking the, the occupation that you've had and you have as well, Alan, it's uh, you have to be, mm-hmm. you have to be. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it, uh, I guess we we can kind of wrap up that there. I mean, the, we we were talking about the the rules committees, the early ones, and and of course, uh, being as they were, they kind of uh, made some changes. And they the rules committee not long afterwards looked a lot like they did today, where only the chartered breed associations were in attendance, only two members per association was uh, was allowed in, and uh, and that's how we still do it to this day. It, it is the mm-hmm. same as we did it last mm-hmm. year, uh, yeah. right over there in the uh, expo halls. So. Yeah. 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 But, yeah. you know, as, as much as, as things have changed, you know, I, I, we've talked about a lot, we gave a lot of, uh, of credit to the folks back there that did it. And I'm just trying to think of what it would be like today if there wasn't those people who were progressive in their thoughts, like we've talked about, mm-hmm. you know, as of 2022. So, uh, the 2022 stats, uh, UKC has a thousand and eighty four active coonhound clubs today. Um, and we had over 7,000 licensed night hunts last year in 2022. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it all started back in, back in the the mid '40s into early, uh, the 1950s, and eventually 1953. Whenever those first official UKC license night hunts took place, and I was trying to think back, I, I didn't want to. I, I put this in here, but 70 years. Wow, it's. Kind of, I was trying to put that into perspective for myself because I'm born in '90, so I'm still in the <laughs> mindset like that. That's real close, but it's not anymore. Yeah, that's, that's 33 years back, but. So 1953, we're 70 years from there. Where would we be another 70 years? It'd be the year 2093. So yeah, that, yeah, that you, kind of puts it into perspective. Yeah, I know it does, you know. We'll be coming up on the I millennium. Think, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't think I'll make the next yeah. 70. Uh, Those guys might be talking my... about that guy named Steve Fielder. You know, <laughs> yeah, and, absolutely. I've heard my grandpa talking about him. Absolutely. They will. I always said, you know, as I work down through the years, Sometimes you're so busy and you think you have so much responsibility and everything. And 
And, you know, pride can enter in a little bit. Oh, they're going to miss me when I'm gone. Yeah. And say, no, in two weeks. <laughs> Who was that bald-headed guy that used to <laughs> be down there in that office in the corner? Who, who was yeah. he? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we certainly, uh, like like you mentioned here in your notes, we certainly owe those pioneers a lot, you oh, know, pioneers yeah. of this night hunt game, you know. And, yeah. And uh, it's 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 interesting to go back and kind of look at the history of some of that stuff, how it all came about, you know. <laughs> but uh, And then there's a whole lot more that has transpired, you know, since then. You know, you were involved in a lot of that, you know. But you also have some fun quotes here. I thought they were pretty interesting. We got to yeah. read those. You know, Fred Moran, You know, we all know Fred <laughs> Moran. You know, and, it, and I'll just say we're sitting here recording this at Autumn Oaks. So this is the first year that we didn't actually put an application in the Mancun on Bloodlines for an entry. I don't know if you noticed that or not, I, Steve. I did not. Uh, uh, but we did get one mailed-in entry, and that was from Mr. Fred Moran. He didn't I'll know what to do. It. He didn't know how else to enter. He, he just refuses to let he, go. He, he wrote it up on a sheet of paper, and he mailed it yeah. in. We got his dog entered. Oh, yeah, we did. Awesome. <laughs> no, but So one of the quotes is from Fred Moran here that we have here, and he says, The first hunt I ever went to was in Prospect, Pennsylvania, 1957. They had 12 registered dogs and 47 or 46 grade dogs. Times sure have changed. Yeah, they have. Absolutely. And I, then, oh, go ahead. No, go no, ahead, I, I would just put a punctuation mark on that. I looked at the crowd here today or tonight. You had over with altogether over 500 entries on Friday night. Fred remembers back in 57, they had 12 registered dogs. Yeah, 12 registered dogs. <laughs> yep. That's a long way. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I have another point where you can compare the two. You talked about them being happy with a 12-inch trophy. The the winner this weekend is going to end up with an Owens dog box, a thermal imaging monocular, Whoa. a dog trip pathfinder too, and uh, and who would have known all that stuff would have came about over the past seventy years? Yeah, my, my goodness, goodness, what that looks like now yeah. compared to them. But there was another fun uh, f- a fun uh, quote here, and uh, and kind of just it. it kind of puts into perspective how far the tree and walker breed has came in these years since its infancy back in the early 50s to where it is now where it kind of uh, dominates the competition scene on on the night hunt side at least and it says uh, and this was this was not an article by a competing breed this is what uh, at the end of the magazine what the tree and walker association put it back there in regards to these first couple night hunts and that was in what in like 50, 1953 bloodlines right yeah november yeah. december 1953 bloodlines it says the Walker breed is rather slow to pick up. We all hope to see this breed make progress in 1954. The breed is held back by a few, and this always places a limit on any breed. However, the change will soon be cut, and the breed will come out from under the thumb and go ahead on its own merits. At least this is the report given to me at a recent meeting. <laughs> <laughs> so I am hopeful. Yeah. yeah. How, how about that? Well, yeah. you know, back in the day, people kind of express their thoughts in the writing, in the magazines, and in the articles, you know. And it was like almost like a letter from back home, somebody, you know, they kind of had that way of explaining things. But so if you were writing in a magazine, you just kind of wrote what you thought about mm-hmm. it. And people chose to either accept or not, you sure. know, that. But, uh, yeah, you know, we've, uh, we kind of covered the, the history of it, you know, the early days of it, you know, there's a whole lot in between then and now, you know, that's happened. We're not going to, we could spend another two, three hours talking about all that stuff, you know, but, uh, 
you know, then Fred comes along and there's this thing called the tournament of champions, the TOC, you know, that turned into being the world championship, you know, there's just a whole lot of history there. And eventually the winter classic, which you were a big part of that. Yeah. And can you, can you speak on that a little bit while we have you here? What was that like uh, getting that, uh, what was the, what was all the idea and the thought process of a winter classic? Well, as you know, the, that, of course, you're very much involved now with the Grand American. Mm-hmm. But back in the day, that um, I don't know if that started out as an ACHA event. I believe it did. Uh, and they also had, yeah, and there were the uh, group of hunters in Ohio and so forth. And all these people, they kind of worked it out after a while that they had an AK, ACHA event one night and a UKC event the next night. Right. And uh, that went along fairly well until you mentioned Fred Miller. And Fred was a was a guy that, you know, he, he wanted the best for UKC. And, and so he basically gave them an ultimatum that either it's going to be UKC both nights or no nights. No, nothing. <laughs> and... People, when you back them into a corner, they don't have anywhere to go but overtop you. <laughs> and so they yeah. said, okay, bye. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to be. So for several years, it was like an ACHA hunt. And then as history, the story, AKC bought ACHA. Mm-hmm. The ACHA board and AKC didn't get along. They split ways. There was still an ACHA hunts, but no registry. And there's all that whole history there. But uh, it came back around, you know, to be a UKC in in time. But we during that time that it was being run by another registry, we knew how successful the Grand American was, and we wanted to have a UKC presence in the in the southeast, mm-hmm. which is a very strong coon hunting area, you know. So we talked about that. And the idea was that we were going to put on, we didn't want to compete on the same weekend, but we were going to put an event for our people, Mm -hmm. our UKC people down in the South. So, and I've mentioned this several times, Fred Miller and I were on nine airplanes in two days looking at fairgrounds. Okay. I can remember we went to Macon, Georgia. We went to Perry, Georgia. The big fairgrounds are great, big, oh, what huge, a huge thing. Yeah. But they wanted everybody to park out in the parking lot and walk in to the fairground. You know, coon hunters like to park around, mm. tie their dogs on the tailgate. You're not going to go inside that big ag center and leave your dog two acres back here right. tied right. In a, or in a dog. Bus. So we knew that wouldn't work. We went over by. We flew into Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and I think we looked at something right on the coast around Charleston, mm-hmm. looked at that, and there was a blue tick guy that was pretty popular back at that time. He was a major in the Army, John Falcon, and he had a dog called Southern Blue Pride that he offered at stud, and he was very helpful to us in finding the Albany Georgia location. He set it up with a, a lady named Becky Salimi, who ran was the president of the or the representative for the Chamber of Commerce in Albany. And he he told us, you know, this is 
this is the place you need to go. Of course, mm-hmm. he he was being a, a bit self-serving because that's where he lived down in that area, and he wanted it to come there. Mm-hmm. No problem. But anyway, I remember very well. We flew in. I uh, don't. I think we flew into Tallahassee. I think would have been maybe right into Albany at that time. Becky put us in the car and we drove out to the South Daughtry Daughtry Community Center, which is south of Albany. You go down the the, the famous golfer Bobby Jones mm-hmm. had a house there on the corner, and you turned there and you went down couple miles of water and we turned into this tree line drive and it's if you look at the old ads for the winter classic you'll see this classic coon hunt in the old south Mm -hmm. okay and you'll see these moss draped trees well when we turned down that driveway fred's eyes lit up like a christmas tree he said this is the spot yeah yeah and so but it was a community center and I remember very well in in the heat of that, uh, you know, of course it was January, but we walked off all those vendor spot areas, sprayed them with spray paint because it was just grass. There was no buildings except the clubhouse itself, which was a typical, it looked kind of like a, a country club clubhouse. Hmm. And they had banquets in there and stuff. And the, I remember the first year we had waiters with black pants and white jackets and towels over their, uh, over their, you know, but that was all done by the chamber of commerce. Yeah. See, so we had to rent a circus tent to hold our, our bench show. And we and to, to do call our entries and all of that. So we stayed there three years, but we realized that that event was getting much too large and we didn't know whether anybody would come. And I remember having those butterflies, you know, and that first day, boy, they started rolling in there. And, uh, you know, and it just each year, it just just kept growing. And then we uh, got acquainted with the, the, uh, through the Chamber of Commerce again, the Exchange Club of Albany uh, there. And they wanted to, they ran the fairgrounds. Mm -hmm. And that's how we moved there. And it was there several years. And it years. has one of those took, same big trees out there. And then when you pull into that driveway yeah, as well yeah, on that exactly. fairgrounds. Yeah. yeah. I remember that's one of the first thing I noticed, that mossy tree when you yeah. build mossy uh-huh. moss hanging off that but tree. But that when became you an instant success, really. Yeah. I mean, guys, it, and it provided the perfect getaway for yeah. people in the wintertime. It was. You know. Trevor, did you ever go to that one in Albany? No, I never, never did. Yeah, that was, that, was, uh, that was a good yeah, one. Yeah, and of course you got them. Terrific facility now in Batesville. Yeah. Well, I was going for that time. It w- it was yeah. a good facility. Yeah, you know. You know, and then you kind of mention you say mention a lot of things. It was kind of the same here. I come along and I, you know, you felt or saw the need for one. You know, but yeah. I remember in two thousand eight. You know, things kind of crashed. You know, the economy was not good. That in a was good not place. a good year. Two thousand eight. You know, we, we you mentioned the Grand American, and then we also had Southeastern Tree Walker Days. You know, was at the end of February. Grand American happens the first of January, right? Uh, and we had the the Winter Classic that you're talking about it was the end of January, right. and then Super the, Bowl weekend yeah, every time yeah, yeah. we fly back to Kalamazoo, and the pilot would be <laughs> yeah. relaying the scores over yeah. the intercom. You know, <laughs> miss the Super Bowl every year, <laughs> and then uh, uh, a Southeastern Tree Walker Days there in February, 
And then we've got the economy is just not in a good place at the time. And people really started picking and choosing, you know, Grand American uh, mm -hmm. Winter Classic Which or uh, mm -hmm. Salisbury you know, or Southeastern. And uh, that's kind of what, you know, that's yeah. what I said when I came along, you know, we were, we thought, you know, us being in the middle, we don't really have anything in the Southwest. You know, you're talking about you needed something in the Southeast. When I, during that time, I'm thinking, you know, kind of have this issue here. People are picking and choosing. It kind of makes sense for we don't have anything in the Southwest. So yeah. here I come along. And, and here again, you know, you remember those days when we moved. It was very successful. They're highly oh, yeah. successful. And yeah. that was a big deal to me. And it was, you were apprehensive. You know, that's a big move, taking something that had been there for 25 years at this point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and then, and, but we did a lot of the same things. I made a couple trips, you know, one time by myself and maybe with one of the others. And later on, Todd and I made another trip to look at several locations in the further west, southwest, you know, and, and, uh, and we yeah. eventually landed in, in Batesville, you know, yeah. but that was, you know, it was a huge change, you know, and we oh, took yeah. a lot of criticism over it, but it was the same way for me. You know, you, you're messing with an event that was so successful for so long and you make such a big move, that's, that's, yeah. you don't, you think on paper it might look good, but that yeah. was, that was yeah, a big yeah, yeah. move for well, me it's too. It's a leap of faith. It is, you yeah. know, and then you mentioned, you know, to, to see the people come in and it's, you know, it being what it is, oh, yeah. kind of went through a lot of the same things, I think. I didn't I think. get to go to that first one in Batesville, but I saw the pictures that came forth and all that, and that were taken from up on the mezzanine level or whatever and yeah I said, gee this, yeah. this is nice yeah and see all your vendors in one yeah. spot and and your show and everything yeah. all together and it's a good move no doubt yeah you know but so i think there's a lot of things we talked about a lot the evolution of a lot of things how things of there's the more they stay the you know the more they change the more they kind of still stay the same but it's it, it's you know it's kind of neat to watch the evolution of things you know from mm -hmm. talking all the way back to the to the forties and fifties, you know, and those, and where we are today, you know, we kind of skipped over the, the, this event where we're sitting here recording autumn Oaks, you know, 1960, you know, and yeah. I'm sure you talked a little bit about it in oh, the yeah. onset, you know, mm -hmm. some of your experiences, but, uh, where it is now, you know, and then, and we mentioned the TOC became the world championship. Now we also have the tournament of champions champion. that we kind of stole that name from Fred Miller back in the day. It's and it's, name. It, uh, and yours it, was a lot more successful than his was. <laughs> I don't know, but it's, uh, you know, there's just another evolution of that. That's, uh, really mm -hmm. come a long ways. So, yeah. 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 Well, I think like we talked about, it takes, uh, people who aren't, who aren't afraid to take risk and that's how we've progressed the sport to where we are today. And, uh, uh, still going 70 years later, UKC events were still going strong here in, in Richmond, Indiana at, at yeah. 64 automobiles. Yeah. And I think the crowds are, are, you know, every year since COVID that yeah, yeah right, they're, they're they're larger and larger. Yeah. And there's yeah. been a lot of carbon life forms yeah. on this fairgrounds just today. Yeah, I've been out coming, there coming so walking around. I have a question for you, Steve. I I know we'll probably wrap this up here in a minute, but I have a question for you. In your tenure at UKC, what would you feel like? I'm sure you have something. What what do you consider as your biggest accomplishments in terms of of being um uh in terms of being involved in the sport and the betterment of the sport or improving on the sport did you, well, do, do you have something i do i think you know immediately i think of the growth and success 
of Coonhound Bloodlines magazine during that period of time. Where huge, when I came huge in, during that time. Yes, when, when I came in, and I don't take all the credit for this, but I, I was fortunate to be able to play a part. You know, we had 3,000 subscribers when the other two Coonhound magazines had about, Cooner had 29,000, Folk I had 30. I looked at those numbers a lot, you know, and to see how we were able to grow Coonhound Bloodlines. That was a very, and I ultimately, you know, became the editor. Right. My favorite job was your job, being in the field office. I loved that most. But that was great. I see the Winter Classic as an, an important milestone. I see, and it didn't carry through, but one of the things that I was really fond of and enjoyed a lot was the American Heritage Hunt when mm -hmm. we did that with the Western theme and the rodeo parade and all of that. Those are very fond memories for me. And I think the very first UKC World Championship bench show up in your neck of the woods at Columbia City, Indiana, in 1985. Right. That that was a, a big rush for me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, and, and to see the RQEs progress, because back in the day, we started a century club where if, if a field rep entered 100 dogs or more in an RQE, yeah. he got a plaque and we did a right. presentation at the World Hunt. And that there would there would be a dozen or more of those given yeah, away every yeah, year, you know. Yeah. So those are fond memories. I don't think I could say a, a major accomplishment, except that, you know, I think the PR effort really improved at at, at UKC during that time because Dr. Furman was more of a kind of back in the in the in the uh, in the background kind of guy, really, mm -hmm. and. In the crowds and all, untouchable kind of, mm -hmm. and uh, kind of the opposite. So, of, Fred was kind of the opposite of that. Yeah, probably. Fred always, you know, from the get go, he was at every breed association meeting and all that. I felt like, used to feel a little self conscious because he'd make me go right into those board meetings. I said, "Those guys don't want to." In fact, it was my association, the plot association. They said, "No." Nobody's going to be in here but our directors, <laughs> and there was a pushback <laughs> on that. Yeah. But that's a tough one, uh, Alan. I can only say all my years at UKC were enjoyable. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, they really were. Um, you know, when you get into the push and shove of daily life, you know, it, it can get tedious at times. Sure. But I was always very proud to be part of UKC. Mm -hmm. And I'm still proud to be able to come here and to, that you guys let me sit down with you and talk about that. But I, I can't name what I would think it's a major accomplishment. I do appreciate the growth of the world hunt. I never thought about anything like really like you did with the tournament champions, which that's a home run. I wish I'd had that idea. I didn't. But uh, had some pretty good ideas along yeah. the road. and. And we saw some real growth, you know. Uh, I mean, if you look back at the old world hunt where we'd have 100 entries total or qualified, mm -hmm. and then we'd have, you know, that it grew exponentially, you know, through those years. Right. But um, those are all just fond memories yeah. for me for an old guy. But but uh, I don't know, the one single thing I would think, oh, I I would think either the Winter Classic or 
to see these bench shows, how they have grown. Yeah. And see how many people, the ladies and, and young people especially, that enjoy them. To me, that's a great sense of pride to me. We, did, we didn't touch on that. We should have a little bit, I feel like, because even, even you know, 40 years ago, uh, you're talking about bench shows, 40 years ago, it was a lot of the same men we have talked about yeah. were showing those coonons they were That's hunting. Right. And at some point that kind of evolved, even here at Autumn Oaks, you know, they had the one long bench. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> to get the to get the whole family involved, you know, where, mm -hmm. where some of the women folks t started taking an interest in, in, yeah. in showing the dogs, and that yeah. has totally flip-flopped. You know, well, nowadays you see, and there's still a lot of men still showing dogs, you know, yeah. of course, you know, but uh, there's a whole lot more women involved in the sport as well. Oh, absolutely, and that's very, very very. And bench shows are a big part yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I little things that I'll look back when I'm too old to come to Autumn Oaks and say, I was there when the individual show benches came in. Yeah. You mentioned the yeah. long ones, yeah. you know that and i was there when we did away with the uh convoys yeah and they no longer yeah. had to drive 80 trucks see trevor you probably you probably <laughs> i never attended yeah that yeah. yeah so and those little milestones yeah. along the way you know were kind of i remember kinda the 50th autumn oaks uh, one of the meetings i was kind of trying to push a little bit for some of that to have to bring up bring the long benches back for the 50th autumn oaks and it seemed like everybody thought it was a good idea that may not work that well. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe the hunter or the, right. the bench show folks right. might just not get it, you know. And well, one thing you did that I don't like, and I might as well say it <laughs> yeah. publicly, you got rid of the kitchen in this building, and I can't get a pork chop sandwich. Anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it got Other to than it. that, I'm, I'm pretty yeah. happy. Well, with old Benny been. Green, he, he was having a hard time getting all the help he needed in there. Yeah. But you know, it, you know, a lot of things, uh, a lot of things have changed, and sometimes you think, I don't know. Sometimes I think there's things that worked, you know, 20, 30 years ago that just don't work anymore today. Work today. That's and sometimes true. vice versa. Some things that, uh, sometimes some things that didn't work 10 years ago, they work now. Well, that's, you know, yeah. it's, it, but it's I, interesting how things yeah. kind of happen like that or work I, out like that. Yeah. There's a discussion nationally about history and how is it important or should we just destroy our history and forget about it and, and go, no, we learn from that history. That's why I've always loved history. Yeah. I love to look back. I love the old things. I love log cabins. I love old yep. spinning wheels and yep. plows and, and all those things. But the things that we learned, do we want to go back to that? No. But it's important to know how those people got things done, and they had a work ethic, and they, had, they were innovative, and they thought. Yeah. They were thinkers and all that. And, and that applies still today. I don't think that will ever get old. I really don't. Yeah, you know, it. It's. I feel like I'm. I kind of came along in kind of a in between, if you will, in between era, so to speak. You know, well, now here we get Trevor comes comes along, and and I see him doing good things at UKC. And one of the things that he has brought, as from the younger generation, I feel like is just, uh, you know, the uh, the internet. You know, and, yeah. and and posting things. You know, and and taking advantage of some of those platforms and do them as well as he does, you know, to get information sure. out to the masses, you know. and Vitally and, important today. Yeah. Absolutely. And good, yeah, it's just yeah. Uh, different, you know. And yeah. It's, um, yeah, but it's, 
good good conversation. Yeah, good conversation. I really enjoyed it. And we talked a lot about uh, a lot of people who had major influences on coon hunting and progressing it through the years. And I think uh, I think both of you guys will be uh, mentioned in that conversation as the years progress. You guys have both had major impacts. You're both too humble when you're here talking about it. And, and But you guys have both had major impacts on a lot of hunters' lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and still got a long ways to go. And uh, I've, I've, I feel uh, blessed. It's humbling sitting here with two guys who are – so well respected in the sport, and I appreciate the opportunity to sit down with both of you. I hope you both know that. So. Well, I do, great. and and that comes right back at you, fella. Because when For I look sure. at young, young, sure. guy, young guys, I can't talk. Young guys like yourself that are so bright and so full of energy and so you know articulate and all that, I feel very comfortable to know that the sport I've loved all my life, virtually all well, my life, is a real good hand. Well, I think you can probably relate, Steve, you know, to having been so involved and directly involved, you know, like I have also been that it, it is important for us, for, for those that come behind us to have that same passion for it and mm-hmm. that they, you know, that they. Oh yeah. I know, hope that they will. You're right. I hope right. that they really feel when they come through this door, this is my place. Yeah. You know, I, I, I belong here. Mm-hmm. You know, this, these are my peeps, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and I, I love it, you know, and yeah. I do. And, 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 and not just us, you know, there's a whole lot of folks behind the scenes, hunters. And we talked about oh, the James yeah. Merchants, the Manfred Cravers, you know, and the Robert Graves and, and all those. There's a whole lot of those folks out there still today, even though they might not sit in our seats, but they're a very influential sure, part of absolutely. the evolution of this sport. I used to try at times when I was still involved in standing before a crowd of hunters before event, and I, I would try without being mushy about it. I try to say to those guys, hey, I owe so very much to you guys. That's, you know, yeah. I own my livelihood for all those years. My son was educated by coon hunters, by their contributions to, to you know, our company. Uh, you know, so many things in my life I would not have experienced, uh, you know, financially and uh, mentally and, and mm-hmm. socially and all that that I owe to those guys that were sitting on these bleachers today, That's right. yeah. you know, and I've always felt that very strongly. Mm-hmm. Uh, not always, they probably didn't always when things didn't go just exactly the way they wanted it. And I had to bow up a little bit and say, well, it's chapter and verse boys. <laughs> yeah. The rules say. yeah. But still down deep in my heart, I was very, very grateful for yeah. the opportunity. So I, yeah. I know you guys feel that too. Well, I certainly do, you know, and I know we, uh, the old guys talk about the good old days and I have yeah. my good old days as well, you know, but I'm sure just like here at Autumn Oaks, there's some, some of those folks that raised their hand today that said that it's their first time at Autumn yeah. Oaks, you know, these are the good old days for some of those folks okay. too, in the younger crowd too, you know. Yeah. So. I talk to people on the West Coast and all that are dream is to get out here. Yeah. And they'd say, well, the the duties of life right now, kids, school, yada, yada, can't make it right now. But my goal is to come to Autumn Oaks. Yeah. So, yeah. Good stuff. Well, guys, I think that's a, probably a good place to leave it here. We got uh, 8 o'clock here. A lot of the people are coming back to meet their guides and judges here at the table. And, uh, yeah. man, I can't thank you guys enough for sitting in. Steve, thank you for, uh, thank for you staying so late today and talking to me, me and Alan. Uh, yeah. It was a great conversation. 
uh, all the listeners out there. I hope you enjoyed this look back in the history to see where all this night hunt stuff started and uh, can't wait to see where it progresses through the years. Here's to another 70 years, huh? There you go. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. I loved it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the UKC Hunting Ops Podcast. Be sure to give us a follow so you don't miss any of our new episodes or content. 